0: Welcome to our classroom. Hey, I am excited because I have a group of amazing individuals. And I've been trying to set this up for a while. We've been doing work behind the scenes to make it happen. Because these folks are on the ground, busy, trying to push important matters forward. Not that my other guests (laughs) are, are, are just sitting back idle. Uh, but I typically do not do interviews where I have so many people because it becomes a challenging coordinating schedules. But here we are. We made it happen. And I am so glad that we did because we have an important topic to discuss today. We are going to get into talking about uh, baby bonds, talking about the needs in our community and, of course, talking about inequality and wealth disparity and how it is impacting black and brown folks all over the United States but also what it is that we can do about it how it is that folks in different sectors are working to push things forward and today we have Dr. William Sandy Darity who was who spent a lot of time working in this area trying to solve uh, the wealth inequality in the United States and so he's going to be sharing and we have uh, Alejandra Montoya Boyer, and we have Sergio Munoz, and we have Abigail Golden Vasquez. You can call her Abigail, or you could call her Abigail. Either way, it's acceptable. But Abigail got some Como que tiene sabor. It has a flavor to it. All right. So we're gonna embrace <laughs> it. Oh, thank you all. Thank you all for being here. And for our audience, just so you know a little bit more about these folks, all right? These are regular smuggler people. Yeah, these are folks who are doing big things. Dr. Thank Darity you. is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy. Uh, African and African-American studies and economics and the director of Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as the chair of the Department of African and African-American studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. Sergio Simuñoz, who, who has joined me before, so you've heard his voice. All right, mm-hmm. he's back again. My friend, the Mexican banker, who is in LA, has written 11 books, 550 essays published throughout the Americas, and has produced radio broadcast shows and is doing amazing things in the banking world. Sergio is currently in production on an original series on Latino and Latina prosperity. And so thank you for being here once again. Abigail Golden Vasquez, Senior Fellow, Strategy, and Pride of that. Prior to joining Prosperity Now, where she's at, served as vice president, excuse me, and executive director of Latinos in Society program at the Aspen Institute. where oh, yeah. I mean, I conceptualized and stood up, uh, stood up on a new p- policy program to increase awareness of the growing significance of American Latinos to the future of the U.S. as part of the Aspen Institute's overall effort to foster leadership based on enduring values, and to provide a nonpartisan venue for addressing critical issues facing Latinos in this nation. And Alejandra Montoya-Boyer is the Director of Policy at Prosperity Now, where she oversees the development and implementation of federal, state, and local policy that seeks to improve economic opportunity For BIPOC and low-income families and communities. Welcome, welcome, welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. Listen, we're going to go ahead and get started because there is so much to learn from you all. And so why don't we go ahead and start with Dr. Darity, just uh, sharing a bit about the the pedagogy and and history here as it relates to baby bones.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to tell the story as I remember it. Uh, I think circa 2008 or 2009, uh, Derek Hamilton and I were particularly concerned about the evidence that the Obama administration was not going to make any type of commitment to do something that could be identified as being specifically for black people. And ultimately, I think the only major project that could be described as being specific to Black people that the Obama administration pursued was was My Brother's Keeper, which, uh, you know, from my standpoint, is a particularly fraught type of project. But that's another story. But at the beginning of the Obama administration, uh, we reached the conclusion that if anything was going to be done to address racial wealth disparities in the United States, it would have to be done from the standpoint of designing a universal program that might have a disproportionate benefit for Black Americans. And so that's how we came to thinking about this idea that you could provide every newborn child in the United States with a trust account that was calibrated on the basis of their family's net worth or wealth position. And that was the origins of the idea of a baby bonds proposal. It it was different from some other types of plans that were already extant, that people typically refer to as child savings accounts, because uh, we designed it intentionally to not have parents make contributions or grandparents make contributions into the fund, that this would be a purely publicly provided fund that would be available to every newborn infant in the United States. Um, And in addition, the notion that the amount of the fund would vary with the family's net worth position was a sharp departure from many other types of initiatives uh, to set up some sort of initial asset for uh, for newborn infants. We focused on the idea of giving this to infants because we thought that that would preempt the claim that the individuals themselves might be responsible in some way for their uh, for their disadvantaged economic status, uh, but. There's nothing inherent in the proposal that makes makes it uh, exclusively designed for newborn infants. Uh, you could just as well uh, just set up the program so that young adults could receive it, uh, particularly young adults that have newly formed families. Uh, there's, there's any number of options. Uh, let, let me say, though, that one of the critical aspects of the proposal Uh, And it was something that I wasn't as sensitive to at the point at which we began to develop it, is that it will not eliminate the racial wealth gap. Uh, And a lot of people do argue that it would, but uh, the, the best case scenario for it having a significant effect on the racial wealth gap is if you measure the racial wealth difference at the median rather than the mean. Uh, and so to, 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 to make it clear, if we are to focus on the racial wealth gap by looking at the middle black household and the middle white household or the middle Latino household, we come up with a very sharp difference in the estimate of the amount of the gap. Uh, so let's take the black white comparisons for simplicity. Uh, If you look at the median black and white household, the difference in net worth estimated on the basis of the survey of consumer finances from the Federal Reserve would be about $164,000 per household. But if you look at the mean differential, what we traditionally think about intuitively as the average, the mean differential would be $840,900. So I did some some estimates of trying to determine what the impact of a baby bonds proposal might be, depending upon which measure you use. And you have to keep in mind, of course, if baby bonds are distributed to newborn infants and they only receive access to those funds once they reach young adulthood, you really do have to talk about some period of 30 to 40 years beyond the inception of the program to see its full effects. And so um, if you're thinking about that period 30 to 40 years down the road, estimate that if you look at the median gap between black and white wealth, you could reduce it by as much as 74%. However, if you look at the mean gap, you reduce it by some figure that's closer to 20 to 25%. So there's a a substantial difference in the impact. And now... um, one final initial comment because i don't want to monopolize the conversation but there is a reason for using the mean measure as the disparity measure for wealth between uh social groups that is uh a, a superior uh measure to using the median uh you know customarily people think well you should use the median because the middle households are more representative of the typical experience of uh, most members of the social group, uh, particularly since that middle value is not affected or contaminated by outliers on either end of the distribution. But in the case of thinking about wealth inequality between social groups, especially in the US context, it becomes important to focus on the mean instead. And the reason for this is, uh and, it's because the, the the concentration of wealth in the United States is so skewed. Ninety-seven um, percent of the wealth that is held by households in the United States is held by those that have a net worth above the middle, above the median. Okay? So it's it's only three percent of the nation's wealth that is held by households at the 50th percentile or below. So, if you were to try to look at uh, at black-white differences and focus on the median, you would end up ignoring vast amount of the wealth that's relevant to the comparison or the relative position. And uh, and let me let me conclude by saying. That this, this huge concentration of wealth at the upper end of the distribution is not exclusively due to the fact that there's a handful of white billionaires. Uh, in, indeed, there is a handful of white billionaires, but, uh, but that's not the reason. 25% of white households have a net worth above $1 million. And this is true for only 4% of black households so um, so, I would argue that you really do have to pay attention to the mean gap, and unfortunately, if you focus on the mean gap uh baby bonds is not as efficacious, but it is a wonderful proposal for mitigating the extremes of wealth inequality in the United states, and uh that's why i'm i'm am I'm a fervent advocate of the project
0: oh thanks. Thanks for sharing. That that context matters. <clears throat> that's that state of that probably the average person doesn't know. When you mentioned that ninety seven percent of wealth is held by households above the median, along with a lot a lot of the other data points that you mentioned, uh, and and you were saying earlier, you mentioned that parents would not invest uh, in this because it would be a public fund. Which then got me thinking. Like, eh, said, I'm interested to hear your perspective as a, a banker, given that folks wouldn't be investing this. It's a public fund. How, how does that sound to you? And and how is this sustainable? How can we transfer this?
2: Oh boy, that that's a tough question for me to answer, Roberto. Um, I'm I was coming at this from a drastically different perspective. Let's hear it. Uh, so, forgive me if I if I twist a little bit right here. Um, with Dr. Darity's work, that he, I mean, this is going on past a decade, right, Sandy? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're at a point now where um, it's it's gaining traction. It's gained traction. In D.C., and California, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, they talk about this a lot. Um, before I would go to the question that you posed, which is, you know, how contributions would work. I was really looking more out from the educational perspective of how do you educate a public, be it. Black, Latino, uh, Indigenous, on the type of complicated um, work that Sandy does as an economist, right? Like, even, even just the description that he gave prior to me speaking, when you start to go into means and medians and all that, like, I, how do you explain that to a child mm. uh, that's not prepared for that type of economist language? Not, or, or, or even to the adult community that's not
0: necessarily using that language on a day to day, and right. may not have an understanding of mean versus medium. Medium.
2: So, so I, I break this out into three different ways of of understanding it all. Right, which is one understanding baby bonds. A period, like just the concept of it secondarily is like if it were to go into effect who's going to be compounding the bond and then the third which is arguably probably the most complicated which is spending the the fund right like um one of the wealth building activities that they mention is business and that like we could get into a whole discussion on venture capital and how complicated um, it is to start and, and maintain a business. Um, But um, so I haven't gone that far, Roberto on, on even like the contributions there is to your point though. um, And Sandy can talk about this is there's a, a really interesting dynamic that's, that Sandy was pushing originally with his proposal, which was that the parents or the grandparents, I imagine, wouldn't be able to manage the the baby bonds for the children for very specific reasons. A lot of uh, reasons. And so I would sort of uh, move to that a little bit um, and, and push it back to Sandy as to the why of that.
0: Yeah, if you could elaborate a little bit uh Sandy on on that aspect.
1: Yeah, um actually the there 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 could be an educational dimension to this project because the young people would not receive the funds until they reached 18 years of age or in some in some formulations 21 or 24 years of age. So there would be an opportunity to provide them with uh various forms of financial management training which they might actually have an incentive to pay attention to knowing that they were going to receive uh somewhat of a significant asset later in their lives uh but uh the the premise behind excluding the parents from having any significant role in this process uh which does raise questions about how you address family well-being during the period before the child actually is eligible to receive the funds. Uh, but but the, the premise here is that we did not want to have any kinds of complaints that there could be interference or mismanagement uh, on the part of the older generation, that in some sense this is a, a set of funds that would be protected Uh, through uh, a centralized government agency for the purposes of being distributed to the young people when they reach the relevant age of majority. Um, The other thing here is, you know, something that Sergio mentioned, which is really, really important, which is the question of whether or not the funds should be designated for specific purposes or whether the young people can use it for whatever in the world they please. And that's been something that's been, been somewhat of a sensitive debate between uh, between uh, Derek and myself at the point where we were formulating this, because I was inclined to be non-paternalistic and say, you know, they could use it for whatever. And he was more inclined to say, well, I look around and I look at stupid decisions that teenagers make. Or uh, And so we ought to restrict it to uh, either home ownership or educational purposes or business development purposes and the like. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, I'm open to having that conversation still. But uh, but I think that that's a really important question that, that Sergio has just, just raised.
0: Yeah, and it's a good opportunity, Abigail, for you to chime in as we're thinking about messaging to the community.
3: Just let me say it's an honor to be on this uh, on this panel and this discussion um, with Dr. Darity, a founding father of this incredible legislation, as well as every other person here, and my dear friend and colleague, Alejandra, as well. And she's got a lot to say on the policy side. Um, yes, so uh, about communicating around Baby bonds, or really any other policy or legislation that impacts Latinos and other communities of color. I think we need to recognize specifically when it comes to Latinos, we are not a monolith. We come, as I always say, in every shape, color, and size, every flavor, cada sabor. Um, We don't all speak Spanish. Some of us speak only Spanish. Some of us are bilingual. Some of us have been here for decades, um, you know, centuries uh, before there even was a United States and others have come more recently. We represent all kinds of countries across Latin America and the Caribbean. So I'm saying this because we are so diverse. And so I truly believe that targeted messaging is essential. And um, I'll get back to that later in terms of trusted interlocutors and trusted, um, you know, and strategies for for doing that. Um, But while I'm talking about all of this diversity, there's also commonality. And there are messages and messaging that resonate across, and I would say across all families and households, but... There is a very specific and and heavy emphasis on la familia, in the family, in our communities across all the difference, and um, and that is definitely not to say that's not the case in other communities. That is not what I'm saying, um, and so but that I think is a real critical um, messaging hook. And so when you're talking like how do you help families understand the great potential that this legislation has and to ensure that they are equipped to be able to take advantage of this. And as Dr. Um, Darity was saying before, that if there are any requirements about courses that need to, need to be taken or how to manage this money successfully when they finally have it in their hands, um, this has to be done In a targeted fashion through trusted interlocutors. And some of those are um, organizations like CDFIs, community financial development institutions, which are already in community and already working um, directly with folks and know how and, and are trusted and know how. To, um, to communicate these messages. I wouldn't be in this forum if I weren't to talk about the importance of schools and education. That's a great opportunity. And education is another um, really important pillar for Latino communities. It's seen as a mechanism for advancing. And so there's a lot of trust put into teachers and to um, educational institutions, despite the fact that they have failed us at times. <laughs> it's still a central um, you know, a, a very respected and important institution. Um, churches, these are all um, places I think that we can go to to try to get these messages across. And um, there, you know, Alejandra is one who, who really taught me about this. There's, um, there's one thing to do policy. It's another thing to ensure that people can actually benefit from that. And so that's where this education piece comes in, is ensuring that we are targeting the messaging to the communities in the language that they are going to hear it. And when I say language, I don't just mean Spanish, English. I mean, you know, if you're in Hialeah, Florida, you know, using those terms and that language that's going to resonate versus maybe if you're in texas or california or new mexico or where i'm from you know in new york so you know really targeting to um to your audience um very specifically tailoring your messaging and messages so i'll leave it at that and then i'll let um let Ale expand
0: what should the average person that doesn't know much about this be paying attention to uh how can we benefit from being more engaged as it relates to knowing what policies to advocate for? Um, What, what's, what are you doing at prosperity now? What's what is prosperity now doing as an organization to help move things forward?
4: Yeah. um, So I'll jump in and start with kind of why this matters for prosperity now. And our, the, the approach that we're taking to this recognizing I'm going to start with like we're trying to solve a like racial economic injustice system and wealth inequality that has existed for nearing 500 years. These are things that we're like undoing. And so solving through policy, there's no silver bullet. There's no like one policy or even a handful of policies that are going to fix all of this. And to Dr. Darity's point, Baby bonds is a fantastic proposal, but it is one of many things that we need to be able to completely like resolve and solve these structural challenges. So um, as excited as I am about the work that I do, the proposals that we move forward and turn into policy, these are things that will take decades for us. And I mean, there's just a lot of work to do. So I want to start there, um, mostly because I'm, you know, and uh, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, but I'm working through that and I'm going to bring an optimist approach to this conversation. Um, I'm going to start with another data point as well um, to add to Dr. Darity's. Um, I apologize. It's in the median and not the mean. So um, as we just heard, um, there are some limitations with the way that that data is um, depicted. But um, Black households have 12 cents for every white dollar and Latina households have 21 cents for every white dollar. So oh. if we're looking at some um, kind of bare minimum ways to cut wealth disparities, I mean, that's pretty massive. And so when um, we looked at the, pol- the the policy proposal that Dr. Darity and um, Dr. Derek Hamilton put together around baby bonds, prosperity now is really trying to see how do we actually turn these proposals into policy and then implement um, you know, p- go through the legislative process and then implement them. Um, so, at the federal level, Prosperity Now um, has worked with Senator Cory Booker, um, who introduced the American Opportunity Accounts Act, which is the legislation that would actually put a baby, a national baby bonds program together. Um, we've worked with him for several years now. He reintroduced it this year with um, Representative Ayanna Presley in the House side, um, and in its current iteration, um, this is what it would do: upon um, birth. Every single child of the 4 million babies that are about 4 million babies that are born in the United States would receive $1,000 into an account. And then every year, um, based on income, so really targeting with an income-based approach, targeting the lowest income families, um, dollars would be invested back into the account from the government. As Dr. Darity said, this is specifically a public investment into these accounts. And that would grow over the course of the 18 years. Um, estimates with, um, so uh those initial accounts for the lowest income families would amount to about $34,000. With the growth on those bonds, it would actually look like probably forty-five dollars to $46,000 um, at 18. So if we're looking at the affordability crisis on post-secondary education, housing, starting a business, we know that $45,000 is not going to solve the problem. But $45,000 as an 18-year-old, I mean, I can tell you as someone that went to an uh, overpriced college um, with not the resources available that I would have liked to have had, and I'm now swimming in student debt, um, it would be fantastic to have had $45,000 to put toward my education, um, to put toward buying a home. Um, and these the specific um, purchases or um, ways that we can spend the money, and Dr. Darity, I agree with you, we can definitely talk about that (laughs) that have that conversation, but right now the legislation is specifically targeting um, purchases that are considered wealth building opportunities. There is a return on investment um, that would grow into um, hopefully not just um, individual wealth, but generational wealth through homeownership, post-secondary education, starting a business, sometimes uh, retirement um, so that's the federal program. Um, we've heard talk about the state programs that have already come up. Um, most notably, Connecticut was the first state to pass, a, a state program. Um, it functions very similarly to the federal program, though I will, um, put the caveat that, um, it is a much smaller amount of money, just given the fact that the state of Connecticut has nowhere near the resources that the um, entire United States have and kids, um, so, kids born in July or the first this year are the first round of kids that are going to be able to access this funds. And the estimation is that by on turning eighteen, they'll um, have around twelve to fifteen thousand dollars to put toward those same wealth building opportunities. Um, so, you know, these are policies that I want to, like I said, they are attempting to really shift the way that we are starting out letting the next generation start out on a more even playing field. It is not going to be able to solve full um, wealth inequalities, or as we said, close the racial wealth gap, but it's trying to even that playing field so that kids, young adults starting in college are entering that stage of their life on a more similar playing field to white kids. Um, And so recognizing that, recognizing that um, these are public investments. Back to the question for Sergio. Part of our perspective from prosperity now, why we don't want parents and grandparents investing is not just because of you know some of the financial issues, but also recognizing we're trying to close gaps. If there are families that have more money to be able to put into that um account, it could actually exacerbate gaps, knowing that the lowest income families don't have added savings or added resources to be able to target toward. Um, toward toward those toward savings. Um, so, from our perspective, the the, the goal really is um, to iterate and innovate on these policies, knowing that baby bonds is a fantastic program if implemented. But how can we connect the dots between baby bonds, a future investment, toward what do families need right now? What can we do with guaranteed income, with expanded child tax credits, with housing needs, Like knowing that there's a full body of policies and programs that families will rely on to truly be able to make a meaningful dent in a wildly uneven playing field right now. And so um, for us, that's really what we're we're coming and approaching um, baby bonds with.
0: Yeah, I think that's critical. I mean, to think about the possibility of an eighteen-year-old receiving thousands of dollars, and and I know you mentioned Connecticut. Fine, it's not forty-five thousand, uh, but to to receive five, ten, maybe fifteen thousand upon turning eighteen, to invest in your education, to maybe use as a down payment for a home. I mean, with the housing crisis, like that, that even sm- sounds like small money with everything that's going on now, right? Um, but then again, when you think about all of the programs that are available, things that could help folks get a leg up, uh, first time home buyer program, things of the sort. Uh, and, and a lot of this, we mentioned this earlier, as it relates to messaging in the community, uh, a lot of this does come down to awareness. Right, a lot of this does come down to educating, uh, at educating and advocating, right? And and again, that's where I come in as someone in the K through twelve realm. And so, Sergio, Sergio, I'd love to give you an opportunity uh, to to build on some of what was stated here. As I know, this is something that you're passionate about and that we've been talking about. Um, just you know, bring us further into your lens as a banker. Uh, and and how this resonates with you.
2: Um, So I've been entrenched over the last uh, 13 years in government-funded programs that go out to homeowners. And so the funds are originating at the U.S. Treasury. And so I have been at the street level um, watching how these programs work. And so in my mind, that's when when I first met Sandy Darity, I thought, wow, like these programs were created over a weekend uh, with with the TARP program, like over a weekend. Two days to get these programs into place with with nine billion dollars. Right. And so. I see similarities with, like, for example, the Dream Act. You can't do anything to get that to pass. Um, baby bonds, I- I'm seeing that it's building momentum, but I'm seeing that, um, you know, it hasn't passed yet, right? And so what what does the public need to do, or how does the public need to get educated on Building that that groundswell of support, so that I imagine, and and Sandy, I'll, I'll ask you, like, how did Cory Booker get involved, and and why is he not powerful enough to to put this through over a weekend?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question.
2: Um, <laughs> I mean, no disrespect, yeah. right? Like, but but other politicians can. No, I mean,
1: when when we first heard from him it was at their at his staff's initiative he had a staff member who he had told go out and find me some big ideas for my campaign and this was prior to 2019 obviously um and so there were two big ideas and there's one that we really haven't talked about at all today uh, but the first big idea was baby bonds and the second one uh, was a federal job guarantee. And what's interesting about that is actually upwards of 75 to 80 percent of Americans are in favor of it, but it has no traction whatsoever in Congress, which raises some further questions about the nature of American democracy but that that's that's you know that's something that we're tangling with at the deepest level right now. But, um, you know, when when, uh, when work was being done on the baby bonds idea, it was also folded into a wider package of policies that come under the rubric of an economic bill of rights for the 21st century uh, And so uh, I I have no idea. Why uh, there hasn't been more support for the federal job guarantee? I can understand that we don't have a public uh, an a, an acknowledgement of significant public support for baby bonds. Although you know, even right wingers who talk about uh, leveling the playing field ought to be heavily in support of something like this because it doesn't undermine the market system. In fact, it just makes uh, the capacity for people to participate in the market system more equitable. So um, that's that's a great question. I mean, I I don't have a good answer to uh, you know well, the, the political the political failings here. Can I? Let's push it to Alejandra.
2: Yeah, now. can
4: I jump in? Um, I said I was going to bring an optimistic approach, and so that's what I'm going to try to offer. Although the sentiments of like our potentially failing American democracy. Uh, maybe that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> and I'm happy to talk about that anytime. You're welcome
0: to um, come back.
4: <laughs> but yeah. I, I will say, um it's it's it didn't happen in a weekend and it's not um it's not happening next weekend, I can tell you that. But um momentum has shifted. This is a, po- a policy, baby bonds as a policy that went from Kind of obscurity um, with you know a handful of brilliant economists coming up with a proposal that the American public did not really know about, um, and even still is underknown for sure. Um, And there's a mobilizing and public awareness campaign work that we are working on with a number of partners um, that is critical for its success. Um, But I will say that the fact that we're seeing state legislatures pick this up, the fact that there is actual conversations when when Senator Booker first introduced um, the American Opportunity Accounts Act, I think he and a handful of senators, there was like two or three senators that were um, co-sponsors. Um, There was not a House counterpart since then, um, since uh, he ran for president and it became a much more widely known policy. um, uh, Chuck Schumer has now uh, co-sponsored the co-sponsorships in the Senate have are um, almost all of the Democrats, to be quite honest. The House counterpart now has um, a number of co-sponsors. Um, we're seeing, I mean, we've seen Connecticut and Washington DC pass uh, legislation. California has something similar that's specifically targeting um, kids who lost parents to COVID. Um, we've seen legislation in Washington, Massachusetts, Nevada, Um, Louisiana's done a study of it. Um, Iowa has brought this up. Um, there's talks in New Mexico. And so like, I absolutely recognize that there is more that the federal government could and should be doing. But in the span of about 10 years, we've taken a policy that is almost specifically race targeted, which in this political climate is a nightmare, to be quite blunt, um, to become something that is growing momentum, that people are really interested in learning about and supporting. Um, And when we go to the Hill, we're now talking about it. Um, and state legislatures, we're not talking about it as something that is maybe not viable this year, but is becoming viable in a near future. In a way that I think is very surprising, um, surprising and a, a, a deep shift in mm-hmm. its its place in the policy space.
1: Yeah, I, I was just going to say that one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that most of the state level. Policies are have some sort of means test attached to them, Uh, whereas uh, I think the conversation about the federal policy is it's indeed universal. Now, um, when when Derek and I first introduced this idea, we said, "Well, the amount should be calibrated on the basis of the net worth position of the child's family." Uh, In the Cory Booker proposal, the amounts are calibrated well well it's it's a little trickier there's a lump sum that's given to every child and then on an annual basis additions are made to that lump sum by the government that's based upon the income of the family not the uh not the net worth and i i think that this is a clever idea because it prevents uh families from gaming the system but on the other hand, we would rather that it would be the family's annual wealth position rather than its income position that's being used for the calibration. Uh, but I think that the Booker staff thought that that was data that was too hard to get, uh, whereas you could rely directly on people's income tax information. Right. Uh as, and that gets a little tricky for the people who don't have to pay any income taxes, who were probably the folks we're most concerned about. But um but but income was easier to get a get a handle on than wealth with the existing data that we have on on individuals in the United States.
0: So much nuance here. <laughs> Just thinking about everything that y'all are sharing
2: and so Roberto, I, I would like to bring this to to the more personal level if if you didn't mind. Um is with you. You have three children, correct? Yes. Okay. I'm looking at this from the perspective of a six-year-old, and I'm in the fortunate position that I'm privileged. And so I actually did this for my six-year-old. Like my six-year-old has a six-figure drip fund that is compounding. He does not know that he has a six-figure drip fund that is compounding, right? And and there is no language available to me as his father to explain it to him, right? At 6. Um how do you feel? What are the ages of your children?
0: 8, 5 and 2.
2: Okay. So the eight-year-old, do you feel that you can explain economics in any way to that eight-year-old?
0: I don't think I can explain the drip fund. (laughs) But, you know, we talk about the importance of investing, the importance of saving, the importance of compound interest. I think there's probably more work that... I could do to make it kid friendly Uh, and, and I'm still trying to understand that. Right. Because if I'm being completely honest, like it's, it's also taken me a while to understand not, not just a lot of the
2: language, but how this works. Let's go to Abigail and, and talk about messaging in terms of compound interest in
3: elementary school. Why are you doing this to me? Like what kind of question is that? No, no, it's cool. It's cool because I'm actually obsessed with this issue—not um, necessarily compound interest, but I'm very obsessed with the creation of wealth and how people who don't have it um, can get it. And I'm—I am going to tell you why, because I literally had one wealthy grandparent and one factory working. Grandparent who, when they retired, had to work as a janitor to continue to survive and provide for his immediate family. So, I have seen firsthand in my own household the absolute different trajectories available to people depending on where the starting point is. Mm -hmm. So, I care deeply about this issue. Interestingly, I have a 13 year old who was lucky enough in public school to start an invest, to take an investing club. To participate in an investing club probably when he was about nine or ten uh, and awesome. um i don't i don't i didn't know that it might have sunk in but check this out randomly this weekend. We were coming back from baseball camp and he started telling me about how the teacher told them not to invest in Tesla because uh, their class last year had lost all this money in Tesla. And this one kid did it and killed it. (laughs) So (laughs) you don't know what they're able to learn or not learn. I'm not sure about whether it's important to have some complex baby bonds discussion or some complex compounding interest discussion with a child there's age appropriate things that educators would know a lot more than me about however i started an allowance when this when my child was about 5 years old and there was $3 a week $1 went to charity $1 went to um personal use savings uh, no excuse me personal spending including buying gifts for birthday gifts for friends. And $1 went to savings. And we have slowly, um, you know, increased that over time with age, according to like literally what the internet tells you, you can do like what's appropriate for the age. And, um, and my kid is I, I wouldn't say super savvy, but, you know, he started a little business. He was side hustling. He got some, he, he would buy stuff at Costco and then resell it at school. And we sat down and really tried to work through, like, how do you know if you're making a profit? Like, how do you know how much you need to buy and how much you're trying to make? And, you know, all this stuff. He he got in trouble for it. And he, he you know, he, he had to stop. But, you know, I think these things are what we as parents can and should be doing is to start introducing them to to these to these things. Um, And um, I certainly wish there was a lot more education on finance in school. I think that's something we could um, bring back. And, you know, it used to be in home economics and stuff like that. But, you know, and then that just got thrown out the window at some point, but in whatever fashion. That it comes, um, I think it's incredibly important to continue to educate. Eventually, you can get to compound interest, but let's just start maybe with our our home savings account.
4: Yeah, well, one I'll throw one little quick thing. Um, Prosperity now has been using a monopoly uh, metaphor. We have some like TikToks out there that I'm happy to send because yes, we're on TikTok and we're trying to get it out to the masses. The monopoly metaphor. Um, works to some degree with kids, um, but also with adults. Um, so, Does Monopoly yeah.
2: still exist?
4: Yeah, except there's like a million new versions and there's like one <laughs> forever. I'm sure there's going to be like a Barbie movie version. And a Monopoly whatever.
0: has <laughs> a Monopoly on the board game, Samuel. Yes,
4: yes. Uh, I can't uh, see yeah.
2: my six-year-old actually busting out a, a Monopoly thing and with a switch next to him or a tablet next to him. Oh, I'm I, sure. I, I can't see it happening right now, but I, I'd be... I'd love to see it happen.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm sure there's versions. And while I'm not yeah. a parent, I do have uh, two sobrinos that are 8 and 10, and they um, keep me very aware of what's <laughs> on the forefront of toys and board games. I swear my niece is going to be a politician, a president, like maybe the first Latina president. Um, who knows? But sh- like they... Um, I think they fully do understand, like, they can describe what I do better than I describe it sometimes, because I think they're fully aware of, like, we've worked really hard to, uh, like, how ha- describe what, um, you know, the challenges of the world and just be really blunt and upfront with them about um, racism and sexism and wealth inequality. And that part of the way that we're able to fix this and fix it is through. Um, You know, we have a government that is meant to be responsible for responding to these challenges and crises. And right now, how effective that is, again, probably for another conversation, Um, but that it's meant to be driven by the people. And they as kids are a part of that group. And so making their voice heard by um, they've written letters to the president, they've written letters to their members of Congress, My niece has published an op ed on providing resources for low income families um, in the Albuquerque Journal. I'm from New Mexico. So, like, I also think they have a particularly um, involved family. My, um, you know, I'm not the only person involved in politics and policy. So, um, they're in an environment and ecosystem where that's being absorbed um, and they have that privilege. Um, but I can also say they, like, go to their, like, school and and perform these same things. They're, like, running their little friend groups because they've built up this idea of, like, um, consensus. And, and, like, they implement their, like, democratic practices. They run little elections on what games they're going to play and who's going to be, like, captain of the soccer team. And um, so... I, I'm one I think we underestimate what kids can can absorb and take in and learn, especially when these are like politics is born out of lived experiences and particularly for people of color like that stuff gets absorbed young. And is like, I, you know, we kids are so aware of what's going on in ways that like is so impressive. And so if we can just foster that even just a little bit and like f- flame those fires Um, Or whatever the metaphor is. I really think that it's something that like getting like future advocates and and we're seeing that I think like this gen or like newer generations, Gen Z and whoever like TikTok and Twitter, although maybe not Twitter so much anymore, is like so full of examples of advocacy and people fighting for and calling out bad policy, good policy. Um, being translators for their communities and other communities, both in like, how do I describe this in a way people will understand, but also how do I turn this into, you know, Spanish language, all the things. I I think it's happening naturally, because we're also be as a response to trauma and crises, which is pretty terrible, but also hopefully they're going to make it all better and fix it for us.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And and, and part of what we're trying to do here is you know, yes, there's been some reactive stuff, but we're trying to push this so that there are proactive approaches to the dialogue. That we're implementing proactive strategies, and that we're also encouraging the the schools to teach about these topics, to teach financial literacy, to to help support economic freedom, right? Uh, through advocacy, but but also through understanding the policies that are out there that could help change the trajectories of families. And so, as we wrap up here, because we only have a few minutes left, I'd like to just go around the room real quick and ask each of you, starting with Sergio, to to share as it relates to this topic of of wealth inequality. What's a message of encouragement that you have for the people? And Alejandra, you're gonna love this because I know you're working on not being a pessimist.
2: <laughs> I, I'm in the same loop of defeatism that Alejandra's in. Um, so I, I sympathize and empathize, um, and, and my opinions of the United States are probably, um, a lot lower than, than maybe other people's. So Cory Booker was just with the Aspen Institute and talking about baby bonds. And he said, you know, we, we really got to turn ideas into actions. I mean, that was for me, that was the thesis of what he said. Right. And so the idea has already been thought by, by Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton. Um, it's already gone through multiple iterations and, and it's already, um, you know if we start to get positive about it, it's starting to gain some momentum in, in certain ways. Not enough for me, but but uh, still nonetheless. The action that would inspire me now, would be to build that groundswell of support, uh, among educators, um, especially in K through 12 to, to begin to talk about, you know, money, which is taboo still in this country and, uh, trust in, in the money management industry, which is super complex. And, and then lastly, um, compounding like compounding is such a a bizarre concept um, in capitalism that like I don't know why anybody would understand it right but it it, it's it's has worked really well for for a certain type of person over the the course of history well
0: we're going to push to make it work well for every type of person Dr. Darity your message of encouragement
1: well i I do think there's some signs of encouragement Alejandra mentioned, which, which have to do with, uh, the, the initiatives that are underway in a variety of states for this type of a, a program. Uh, and I hope that, uh, at some point there will be, uh, sufficient momentum to make it happen at the federal level and that that will encompass all of the state. The state initiatives that are that are underway, but I, I think there's a, there's something positive in the fact that this has gotten serious consideration and even approval in at least one state. Thanks for sharing,
3: Abigail. Sure. Um, so mine is a, a bit of pessimism with um, a, a, a slight bit of optimism at the end. One of the things I didn't get a chance to talk about before is so often. Latinos are left out of the messaging piece of all of these great policies. And I can give plenty of examples, but we're at the end here, so I'm not going to do that. Um, But what I want to say is we know now, what can be done? I think we know we have some hooks for around um, messaging that can work. We um, and it's really just about investing. So what would make me very, um you know, optimistic was if we started to invest, in getting that awareness out to the Latino communities. I always say plural, cause there is not one Latino community. So I think we know what we have to do. And I think we know how to do it. We just need the dollars to make it happen. So that come coming to the table would make me super optimistic. Gracias. Alejandra.
4: Yeah, um, I'm still learning to be an optimist. So it's gonna be a little pessimistic-y optimist. Um, we have to. I mean the re- reality is that like if we're not doing something about wealth inequality about um the like barriers caused by structural racism, um uh, this country and our like global society will not be able to like function and flourish with a growing number of people of color with capitalism on the brink of whatever it's doing. Um our democracy, like all of the like we really have to do it like we these are necessarily necessary challenges to solve, and um they will just continue to exacerbate to the point where i i i mean like apocalyptic visions are entering my brain right now, so part of the my message is really like and and there are so many ways my point is not every not everybody needs to be a policy advocate or a politician or all these things, educators, artists, activists, creators, authors, like there are so many ways to tackle these massive challenges that are all intersecting. And so this isn't just like everybody go work in Washington, D.C. This is like we need to make a more just economy, a more just society. Um, and we're hopefully going to find a way to do that.
3: If I could just add one more little optimistic note too to end on is you know I'm old enough now to have seen um some huge changes in the last couple of years just even awareness of wealth inequality of tracking of of inequities and a new lexicon and a language to talk about it that is widely understood and accepted not by everyone of course but I think we are um in a very different place than we were 15, 20 years ago of just understanding the um causes of structural racism and and systems of oppression and inequality um and on a mass level that um certainly wasn't around when I was coming up.
1: Thanks. And one more addendum. Yes, yes. Which is uh, you know, I people always ask, How are you going to pay for it? Well, this is not a particularly expensive program. If Uh, 4 million newborn infants received an average of $25,000 as their initial trust fund amount. It would cost $100 billion, and that's out of a national budget of $6.27 trillion. In this country, we invest more money than that on things
0: that are meaningless um, or less impactful, I should say. Well, thank you all. Thank you all. I'm I'm hopeful because you're doing a lot of great work that is having a big impact. And I, I know we have some pessimists here, uh, and and I include myself at times. I'll also add that when I think about some of the people in my circle, it's been fascinating to to see witness the growth in terms of a generation of people who are really paying attention to the steps that they need to take in order to set their children up even if the school is not feeding them that information now we're still going to push the schools you know and that's that's part of my duty and we're still going to challenge curriculums to include teaching on financial literacy to to include opportunities such as the one that son had to, to have a class in, in which they're actually doing hands-on learning as it relates to investing, just like my nephew had at the private school that he attended. And so we we want kids to have those opportunities across the board, right? Not just certain public schools and not just the private school. We We want kids to have those opportunities regardless. And so Thank you all for your insight. Uh, certainly, there's a lot more that could have been discussed, and a lot more that you can all contribute because you're you're experts in your area. So I'd, I'd love to reconnect at some point down the line to dig deeper into some of the things that we weren't able to unpack more fully. And and so I I invite you now, <laughs> open invitation to revisit our classroom. Uh, to continue to share your knowledge and hopefully to to impact uh, my audience and to impact the many educators that I know, who who I think are receptive to this, but you know perhaps don't necessarily have uh, the understanding, the insight, um, or the strategies to to teach some of these principles. Which for for you it might seem like a basic thing, but I think there are many individuals who are also struggling to understand how they could become financially free themselves. And so we want to support them in doing that. Uh, And as we're supporting them, then they will be supporting our young people. Thanks for your time. And we will do this again. Your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.